Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. For free resources and free messages, visit our website, friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or call us for more information at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Uh, if you like to open in your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 14, and uh, get ready to start here this morning. Let's first of all pray. Father, here we are. We're ready now before you, Lord, and we ask you to open our heart that we might love you, Lord. Open our eyes that we might see the Lord Jesus Christ in the Scriptures, and open our ears that we might hear the message you have for each one of us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, here we are, and uh, please follow along here in Genesis 14, 13. Thanks, Irene. All right, and there came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Anar, and these were confederate with Abraham. When Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained men, and born in his own house 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them, and pursued them unto Horbah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods, and the women also, and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Kedaloemer, and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheva, which is the king's dale. Now, Kizadak, king of Salem, brought up forth bread and wine, and he was a priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him, said, Blessed be Abram, the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, who has delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. King of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods of thyself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the Most High God the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to the shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldst stay. I have made Abram rich, save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Anar Eshkel, Mamre. Let them take their portion. All right, now, from our last studies as we've been here, we just can't get over this picture that we've got here of Abraham in this chapter in verse 14. This is so remarkable. When Abraham says he heard his brother was taken captive and he springs into action, he arms his trained men and so forth. That's the Abraham that we're proud of in a good sense of being proud. We are very, very happy to see that's our man. That's Abraham. That's our man. That's the one who we're following. The decisive Abraham, the fearless Abraham, the brave Abraham, the courageous Abraham. And in this verse, we see an Abraham do exactly what Job talked about in Job 29:17, when Job said, and I break the jaws of the wicked and pluck the prey out of his teeth. There was the wicked, and Job saw the wicked with the spoil in his teeth, still alive and walking off so proud with his gain. In fact, Job wants us to get right next to that panting lion and feel the heat of the lion and the breath of the lion. And so Job brings us right down next to this lion where we can see his teeth. He talks about his teeth. And the one thing that a lion likes to do is to show off his teeth. We have all seen those videos 
you know, on the television of the lion quietly stalking its prey and how it'll curl back its teeth to expose its teeth. It's like encouraging himself with this weapon of his teeth connected to those massive jaws and those muscles and the bone-crushing strength and all that. And we've seen the videos of how the lion behaves after he's got it, after he's captured the prey, after he's got it in his teeth. And how he proudly, he marches off in this bold prance as he continues to curl back his teeth and show off this incredible weapon that he has. It's very scary. Let me tell you from experience, we've been at, when we were on safari one time in Serengeti, and it was early in the morning, and we just happened to drive right up as the sun was breaking, and there within six feet of us with this whole pride of lions, and there's a big the male lion, and he just is there for show because the women lion do all the work, as is true most places. But anyway, he's there, and she gets up and just massive muscles, and we were so close, and our guide Bashiri, I knew we were close when our guide Bashiri just slowly reached over and rolled up the window. <laughs> <laughs> but they were waking up in the morning, and, he, and the women, lionesses, should call them lion, anyway, they curl back their teeth. And we've seen, we've seen those videos when the lions catch their prey, how they'll keep it alive. They like to do that. Cats like to do that. They like to keep it alive so they can continue to get the thrill and the rush of the attack as they continue to pounce until finally the little thing dies. But before he kills the prey, the lion is walking off to his place to enjoy his kill and enjoy the process. And at that time, when the prey is still alive, he's hopeless, he's helpless, and he's held by the teeth of those powerful jaws. That's what Job's talking about here. And he's focusing on this prey, and he wants us to see the prey, this prey that's still alive in the teeth of the lion, the prey that's being displayed by the lion as he proudly walks off holding his head up in this prance of pride and power. And so we're brought to see not only the lion in all of his pride and power here, but to see the prey, and the prey that has no hope, the prey that knows that it's only a matter of time until he feels that final last bone-crushing teeth on him and he'll die and he can do nothing the praise is helpless he can do nothing to save himself and as we zoom in on that picture of the prey and freeze that picture right there that's the picture that we see of lot being carried off by kader loimer lot is the prey he's being held in the teeth of those powerful jaws of kader loimer and we think about how lot's feeling and he's been feeling this way for some time he's been about maybe as much as two weeks, he's been captive in the, he's been a part of Cato Loermer's prance of pride and power. And it's been two long weeks for Lot. And during those times, in verse 15, we find the group has now entered back home into Syria, where they're on the left hand of Damascus. And we think a lot. And we think that as he sees that they're entering Syria, and he knows soon it's going to be, it's all over. He has no power. Lot has no power to deliver himself. And the two questions in Lot's mind is, who would deliver me and who could deliver me? And so that's a picture that we have here in chapter 14. That's the picture of Lot is the picture of us. It's not just Lot. It's a picture of us. And like Lot, we were the prey. That was us. We were the prey in the teeth of Satan, the lion. 
And the description of how we were when we were outside the Lord Jesus Christ, when we were not saved, that's presented to us as a point that we should not forget. Like Lot. Why should we not forget that? Because that's how we're going to be compassionate on the lost that we're going to soak to seek to save. Turn to 2 Timothy 2, 24. 2 Timothy 2, 24. Here we have this picture of the lost, and we have the commandments to us as little evangelists. That's what we are. We are little evangelists. And so it says in 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, it says, The servant of the Lord must not, the imperative of it all, must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that impose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. So we are the little evangelists that are being addressed in this part here. And it says to us as little evangelists, you must not strive with the lost. You must not. Well, why must we not be striving with the lost? Why shouldn't we be out there demanding our First Amendment rights to be heard? No. Why must we be as little evangelists when we feel that we have to set the record straight? He can't get away with saying that. We must be gentle. Why do we have to be gentle? We must be gentle. Gentleness is for sissies. (laughs) I'm a man. Why do we have to be gentle? Why do we have to assume the role of a ready teacher, apt to teach, who patiently, the teacher, the picture of the teacher, who's patient and meek, and he continues to instruct an unruly class, like I was part of, where the students are shooting spitballs at the teacher. Why can't we be the sergeant of arms? Why can't we be the powerful principal? That's not the picture. Why do we have to be the teacher that in meekness and patience that just takes all the brunt of these abusive students? Why? It's because we see the picture of Lot in Genesis 14. In verse 15 of there it says, that picture is just embossed on our minds. And we understand from 2 Timothy 2.26, it's a description of how we were. We were like Lot. You know, just as Lot was hopelessly held in the proud teeth of Cadoloermia. We were that way. We were the snare of the devil. We were taken captive by him at his will. And that's how we can be to the lost, not striving and gentle and apt to teach and patient and in meekness instructing. Because we see the lost that we work with as lot. We see the lost that we work with as we were. We see them in Genesis 14, 15. And we understand that as we look Look at 2 Timothy 2.26. They're just caught in the snare of the devil like Lot was, and they're taken captive by him at his will. Because we see the lost, we work with them as we were before we were saved. 2 Timothy 2.26, the snare of the devil, taken captive by him at his will. That's us, as it says in Psalm 124.6. Blessed be the Lord, who hath not given us as a prey to their teeth. And Psalm 124, 6. So there's two ways. We can look at Genesis 14, verse 12. Two ways. We can read it like this, you know. They took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and has departed. (laughs) 
Okay, now I'm ready to go to sleep. Give me my last cookie and milk and another boring Bible passage has put me to sleep. We can look and read it that way, okay? Or we can read it with great interest and say, and they took Lot, Abram's son, his brother's son. He dwelt in Sodom as good as twice. They took Lot. That Lot is in the powerful teeth of Cato Loamer. Lot is on his prance of his power and his pride. And hey, that's me. That's me. Lot is me. And hey, I see myself in Lot. That's me. That's a picture of how I was before I was saved. I was Lot. Satan was Kedoloermer. And like, like Lot was in the teeth of Kedoloermer, I was in the teeth of the devil. And like Kedoloermer was just prancing off in his pride heading for Syria, the devil was prancing off with me heading for hell. And like Lot had no hope, zero hope of escape, I had no hope of escaping from the strong clutches, the teeth of the devil. And that was all true for Lot until a rescuing Abraham appeared on the scene. And how did Abraham appear? With just 318 men. And that looked like nothing compared to the tens of thousands in Kedoloamir's army. And we can imagine Lot, he might have been yelling out to Abraham, Abraham, thank you so much for coming, but you only have 300 men. And I'm being held by an army of tens of thousands, Abraham. You are not enough. You are not enough. And we can imagine, you know, Lot thinking to himself, well, he gets the E for effort. I appreciate that. But I'm about to witness not the slaughter of the kings, but the slaughter of Abraham. That's true for us. That was true for us also. It all looked so dismal for us until our rescuing Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, appeared. And how did the Lord Jesus Christ appear? He appeared, as it says in Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So how did he appear? He appeared, as it says in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born. He appeared as a baby. A baby! I mean, we were captives held in the powerful teeth of the devil. And our rescuer comes as a baby? As it says in Matthew 1, 21, He shall call, bring forth the son, she shall bring forth the son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Mary's newborn baby? <laughs> little Mary's baby? No, Mary's little baby. Mary's little baby is our rescuer? That's our rescuer? That little baby is going to be called Jesus because he's going to save our, us from our sins? We don't need a baby. We need a strong warrior. And then when he grew up, the Lord Jesus Christ grew up, and then John the Baptist saw him for the first time. He says in John 1, 29, he says, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And the same question, a lamb? A lamb? I'm held in the teeth of the devil, a strong lion, and God sends a lamb? I don't need a lamb. I need another lion. I need a strong lion. And that's just like Lot saying, Only 300 men? Just 300 men, Abraham. Abraham, you're way outnumbered. Couldn't you have gotten more men from Sodom and all those other cities? But Abraham was sent by God. And with only 300 men, he destroys Kedoloamir and his army. And the Lord Jesus Christ was sent by God the Father. And coming as just the Lamb, he destroys Satan and his army on the cross, as it says, and turn to this, please, in Colossians 2. 13, Colossians 2, 13 through 15, where it's speaking again about us 
and what happened in the state we were in, how we were rescued. That's what it's speaking about. It says this, And you, being dead in your sins and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinance that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly triumphing over them in it. So notice how in verse 13, the word you, that shows how these verses are personal to each one of us. Personal to us as a group, but personal to each one of us. We each have a testimony story. We each have our life story of the chapter of darkness and then how that was closed and we entered into the never-ending chapter of light. We each have that. You, you. Notice how it says in verse 13, dead. That describes our condition. We were dead. We had no capacity to love God. We were dead. Notice the words in verse 13, your sins, your sins. That shows the reason for our dead condition. It was our sins that made us dead. It was our sinful thoughts that made us dead. It was our sinful words that made us dead. It was our sinful acts that made us dead. They killed us, our sins. And then notice the words, your sins, it says here, your sins. It shows how personal the problem was. It wasn't other people's sins. It was your sins showing the personalness of the problem as expressed by the word your And that's the same idea as expressed in the word our in Isaiah 53, 5, when it says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And then notice in verse 13, the words uncircumcision of your flesh. Uncircumcision. Circumcision was a symbol of dedication to God. We're going to come to it in Genesis 17, 11, where God calls Abraham to, and ye shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a token of the covenant betwixt me and you. Abraham was 99 years old when this unforgettable event happened. He obeyed God. And that was Abraham's choice. God called him to it, but Abraham made the choice to go. Every baby boy gets circumcised in the U.S. Virtually every baby boy, as far as I know. I don't know, but anyway. Growing up, I never heard of a boy never being circumcised, even Gentiles. But when I was in high school in Switzerland, one of my best friends, Joao from Brazil, um, he told us that he was circumcised when he was 12 years old. That was amazing to us, and he described very graphically the pain and how it felt and the weeks that he had to wear only a sheet for clothes, and he'd tell the story, you know, this is like... I mean, you know, what else do boys do in a boys' sporting school but tell horror stories about being circumcised when you're 12 years old? (laughs) But that's what it was. still remember it. But Abraham did not circumcise himself. I mean, I don't think he could. But anyway, he had someone else with a sharp knife do the job, the circumcision. He was 99 years old. He'd never forget it. I'm glad most of us are just eight, or at least, anyways. We're young, and the reason why we're young is so that we will forget it, but anyway. But Moses gives the meaning of circumcision in Deuteronomy 10, 16, when he says, circumcise, therefore, the flesh of your heart. He says, circumcise, therefore, the flesh of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. 
So outward circumcision was only a symbol of an inward circumcision of the cutting away of being stubborn, of being stiff-necked. And just as Abraham did not circumcise himself, but he had someone else circumcise him, so Moses explained that we do not inwardly circumcise ourselves, as Moses said in Deuteronomy 36, and the Lord thy God will circumcise thine heart and the heart of thy seed to love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, that thou mayest live. So just as Abraham had to come to someone, some man, whoever it was, and say, here I am, circumcise me already. So we present ourselves, we present our hearts to God and say, here I am, I give myself to you, cut away the stubbornness out of me and cut away that desire to always want my way and give me a heart to love you with all of my heart and a soul, with all my soul, as it says in James 4, 7, submit yourselves therefore unto God. And... It says in Ezekiel eleven seventeen, Ezekiel eleven seventeen. Yeah, in Ezekiel eleven seventeen it speaks about this cutting away, this replacing. It says, Therefore say, thus saith the Lord, I will even gather you. Speaking to the Jewish people, he said, I will either gather you from the people, from the nations, from the Goyim, and assemble you out of the countries where ye have been scattered. And I will give you the land of Israel, and they shall come thither, and they shall take away all the detestable things thereof, and all the abominations thereof from thence, and I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of your flesh, and will give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my ordinances, and do them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. See, these verses are like a big ball that's starting to roll. It's getting it's, it starts off here, the ball's ready to roll. First, God sets up this potential, and the potential is that he says that he gathers them. And then man makes that potential, or the Jewish people make that potential start coming by responding to God, by coming to God, and then repenting. And then the ball rolls, and there's no less than seven ands that show the ball. Each one of those seven ands is God saying, you know, but wait, there's more. (laughs) And so he says, uh, first in verse 17, notice he says, I will even gather. So what does God do? He calls. He calls to come, come, gather, come for the circumcision of the heart. And notice in verse 18 it says, And they shall come thither. That's man responding to the calling of God. That's man coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. And notice in verse 18, it also speaks about what man does, and they shall take away. That's man responding by turning from sin. That's man's part. God calls, man responds. Never believe anyone who takes away man's part in responding to God. Never believe anyone who makes fatalistic statements that absolve man of his responsibility to come and to repent. Never believe anyone who absolves man of that responsibility. God, in his sovereignty, has crowned man with the sovereignty of choice. And man must on his own respond to God. Faith is not the gift of God. Salvation is the gift of God. Now notice in verse 19 the words where it says, And I will give them one heart. God gives. This is a gift of God. This is not what's in man. God does the circumcising and then he puts in a new heart. That's a gift from God. We have a new heart 
to love God as a gift from God. That's why, if you want to turn or not, but anyway, Psalm 51.10, when David was repenting of what he had done with Bathsheba, the wife of uh, Uriah, and he said in verse 10 of Psalm 51, Create in me a new heart, O God, renew a right spirit within me. That was David's prayer to God, to create in him a new heart. David used the word create. David used the word bara, the same as the second word in the Bible, Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. And in the creation, we know, we studied it, that God created out of nothing. There was nothing that he was working with. There was nothing at all. God just spoke and nothing became something. And David was saying to God, there's nothing for you to work with inside me. Oh God, when you're working with my heart, you have to create from nothing because Paul put it this way. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing, no good starting materials, no good thing for to will is present, but how to perform the good I find not. David was saying to God, his heart was dirty and he needed for God to create a clean heart. Thank you for listening to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. If you would like to hear more of this message or other messages by Tom Cantor, visit our website, friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or go to itunes.com and search for the Friendship with God podcast. All messages are cataloged by date and all available for free listening and free download. You can also call us directly for more information at 800 247 3051. Thanks for listening to Friendship with God with Tom Cantor. Join the Creation Earth History Museum for our 10th Annual Museum Day Family Festival, Saturday, September 26th. Hi, this is Jason Payne, museum curator. I want to personally invite you and your families to a free, fun-filled event including new exhibits, testimonies from leading scientific experts, meet NASA astronaut Colonel Jeffrey Williams, and many others. Activities for the entire family. So join us Saturday, September 26th from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Go online to learn more at creationsd.org or call 619-599-1104. 619-599-1104.